Good afternoon. Uh, it's a beautiful day today, except for the snow. So uh, let's praise God for uh, the opportunity that we have to come into his presence as his people uh, for a wonderful time of remembrance. And now as we sit before the word, uh, let's uh, pray to him for his wisdom and guidance as we try to understand what he wants us to understand today. So we're continuing with our series from Ephesians on the theme for this year, which is uh, Let's Build Together. So today we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But for our reading, I will do the entirety of uh, verses 1 through 16, just to give us a better understanding of the context. So if you are able to, could you please rise up as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up so itself up in love. You may be seated. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word uh, that... Uh, you have given us to not only remind us, but also to train us and equip us in the mission, in the mission to which you have called us um, in this church, in this body that you have instituted. And so, Lord, as we seek uh, to, to build together, to maintain the unity of your gathering, we pray a lot for this passage to speak into our lives and give us a uh, new understanding on how to go about that. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. So like I was uh, mentioning, you know, this uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians is the chapter from which we draw our theme for the year, which is uh, let's build together. Focusing on the church as the, lo the local body of believers, what we are called as a church, as a body to do, which is to grow and to be united, to help each other in the congregation grow, to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling we have received as we read uh, in, this, in this chapter. Ephesians is the great 
church epistle. Now, Paul talks about how, from chapter 1 onwards, in the eternal plan of God, a new people, that is Jew and Gentile, have been formed in Christ through the work of Christ in the lives of individual believers, which is salvation. But then he brings them in into a new humanity, a new body. And this body is the church, which is under the current and future authority of Jesus Christ. And each local church is a manifestation of the universal church. It's an imprint of the universal church in a particular place. So you could say Ephesians is like a manual for how to, how to be a church, how to, how to do church, uh, so to speak. And we read the entirety of this passage to kind of highlight the interconnectedness of the various uh, themes of this chapter to the main purpose of the chapter, which is in verse, uh, verse 3, it says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, the theme of the chapter, and the overall theme, is the unity of the church. And so last week, our brother looked at verses 3 to 6, which is the calling we have to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of Christ as well as the uh, particular uh, facets or aspects around which that unity resolves. How, how, how are Christians united? Verse four to six of Ephesians says, of chapter four says, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christian unity is founded on an orthodox apostolic that is given by the apostles recorded in the word of God. An orthodox apostolic Christian confession which is centered on the supremacy of the one Lord, Jesus Christ in verse 5. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One faith that revolves around him as given initially by Jesus Christ himself, passed on through the apostles, and finally recorded into the word of God, which is what we have. And the one baptism, which is our testimony of our salvation to our fellow brothers and sisters in the waters of baptism, which, which initiates our entrance into the local body of believers. That is the central confession of Christianity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And once that confession is there, that's how you have unity. And so already in Ephesians, we see the intermingling of the individual aspects of salvation, which is that you're not saved because you're a member of a church, or you're not saved because you're born into a Christian family. You're saved through the work of Christ in each individual's heart, which is subjectively received by each individual through faith. And when that individual joins the body, he fulfills the intention of God for his life, which is that the individual Christian is incomplete, you could say he's malformed without his or her integration or participation in the visible body of Christ, our fellow believers. So there's no concept in the Bible of, a, of an island, of a Christian as an island. He kind of drifts apart in this great ocean away from everyone else. 
When you are saved, you are baptized, you're brought into the nearest local body of believers. That's the, that's the pattern of Christian life. So today in verse 7 to 16, we'll look at the means by which the unity of the church can be maintained and enhanced. That's the calling, maintain the unity. When you, when you talk about the word maintain, it, it assumes that there already is an unity, right? You don't maintain something that you don't already have. And what Paul is trying to say is that the local body is formed united because it is formed around the triune God, the one spirit, the one Lord, the one God and Father. And specifically, it is formed through its founding on the confession, which is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But that does not mean that the unity with which the church is formed will continue apart from the active intention and participation of the believers in maintaining that unity. So you have to be eager to maintain unity. In and of ourselves, we are unable to maintain that unity because it is beyond us as mere men and women to, to take accountability and responsibility for upholding the integrity and the majesty of a body which is formed by God. That, that in the smallest of contexts, our talents or our initiative is not enough to keep something together that God has put together. So what Paul wants to say is that God has not just left us with the aim or the task of maintaining unity and then said, you go figure it out. Instead, he wishes to say, if you think this is beyond you, which it is, fear not because help is at hand. And that help comes from the same Lord who formed the church and has brought us into the body. Only he's able to maintain and finish the work of unity that he himself has started in the church. And that help comes in the form of various gifts given by Jesus Christ to the church with the explicit purpose of building up the church and maintaining the unity of the body. So in this passage from verse 7 to 16, we see Paul's theme as being centered around Jesus Christ as the provider of gifts to maintain the unity of the church that he has formed. Verse 7 to 10, he talks about Jesus as the provider. Then verse 11 and 12, it talks about the gifts and the provision which are the gifts given to the church. Then verse 13 to 16, it talks about the purpose with which the gifts are given. So the provider, the provision, and the purpose of the gifts. Let's read from verse 7 to 10. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul has already talked about the idea that the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace can only be accomplished through the gifts that are given by Jesus Christ. But before he goes into the detail and purpose of these gifts, he dwells at some length on who is this Lord who is providing the gifts. And to do that, he uses a reference from Psalm 68 and verse 18, which is verse, uh, verse uh, 8. is taken from Psalm 68 and verse 18. In its original context, it's talking about 
you know, a king of Israel who's a conquering king. He's, he's gone into the battlefield and he's won a battle. And, and on the battlefield, he has taken people prisoner or captive and he's bringing them back. And then when he enters his own country, he distributes the gifts of the battle to his own people. And in the psalm, is talking about the right and the authority of that king to give gifts. Because he has won a battle, he has the authority and the right to distribute the gifts of that battle to his people. And in applying that context to Christ, Paul is trying to say that Jesus Christ has fought a battle. And what is that battle? That battle is the gospel mission of Christ to accomplish salvation for his people. What was the battlefield? The descent into the earth, which you could say is incarnation. But specifically, what he means is that Jesus went in, under, into the earth, literally, into the grave, in a battle with death and sin. And he was fighting death, sin, and its master, the devil himself. So he descended, but he did not stay dead, but rather he ascended, which is the resurrection. And in his ascension, in his resurrection, is the victory, which is that he has defeated sin and death and the grave and the devil. And that victory, that conquest, Paul wishes to remind us, has universal implications. He says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. You know, the disciples, when they saw Jesus' ascension, they looked, it says they looked up into the heavens and they didn't know where he went. And then the angel came and told them, why are you looking up? Because he's gone far above all the heavens in order to do what? That he might fill all things. Because he has defeated the enemy that enslaved all men and all women and all creation, he has been given the authority to rule over all creation and the universe. And that rule, that authority, will be fulfilled one day visibly, which is the filling up of all things with the authority and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says this about Jesus. It says, for in him the whole fullness of the Godhead, our deity, dwells bodily. So he who is the fullness of the Godhead is in the process of filling all things in the universe with that same fullness. That is his ongoing mission. You know, a day will come when that mission will be complete, when all things will be filled. Ephesians chapter uh, Philippians chapter 2, when every knee and every tongue will bow and proclaim allegiance to Jesus Christ. But that day is not here yet. That's why it talks about that he might fill all things. And how is this mission of Jesus Christ as a conquering king being accomplished? Obviously, because he's won the victory on the cross, he's already accomplishing this process of filling all things. But Cast, uh, let's cast our minds back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. The reference will come up on screen. That 
God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things. To whom? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the one who is filling all things has already filled one particular thing in the universe, which is the church. So the church is a representation of what's going to happen in the future when all things are filled. And so what that means is that the mission of the church is at one with the mission of him who has already filled it with his fullness and who seeks to fill the universe the same way. And that's a tremendous and scary thing to comprehend when you think about it, right? That the calling to which we have been called in the church, specifically to maintain the unity of the church, is not just because there's something valuable in itself of saying we are a united church. If we are saying that the fullness of Christ which is found in the church cannot be divided. And that fullness is engaged in a mission to fill other things in the universe. And so that is the mission given to the church as well. That you go out into all the world and make disciples. So our unity doesn't just have the implication of we'll, we'll have harmony and we'll have peace if we are united. No. It means that it's a fundamental aspect of the Christian, of Christ's mission to visibly rule over the universe. And so then you ask, then wh what do I have enough of myself to maintain this unity, to keep this fullness united. And to that Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's saying you're not alone. The king who has defeated death and sin and reigns the universe and is filling all things, he has the right and the authority to give gifts freely to his people and these gifts are the means by which we can maintain the unity of the church and to grow the church. And you notice that Paul begins verse 7 with the word but, right? He's saying, why is there a word, uh, you know, when you use the word but, what does it mean? It means contrast from whatever has gone. So what is the contrast between verses 1 to 6 and verse 7? Because the preceding passage has talked about the church as, as the body, as united, as singular. He's saying, but you have to realize that gifts are given to each and every member of the church as individuals. Christ has picked out each member of the church and has given him or her a gift that is needed, that is necessary to fulfill the church's mandate of maintaining the unity of the body. The goal of the church community, of the Christian community, it's very important to remember, we are not like the Hare Krishnas, if you know what the Hare Krishnas are. Right, like they're like, like a Hindu sect. 
in which everyone wears the same clothes and says the same things. The goal of the Christian community is not conformity or uniformity, that everyone is just the same, that you talk to one, you've already talked to the other. But it is harmony. It is unity in and through diversity. That's where harmony is, right? In music, you have three notes. They are different. They play together in certain context, you create a harmony, or a chord, or a harmony, like you can harmonize. So the goal of the Christian community is not uniformity, but harmony, which is unity through diversity. And this diversity of gifts is given, Paul says, according to a measure, which is a word you'll see over and over again in this chapter. There's an exact amount, a, a standard, a measure that is, that is needed in each believer's life of a particular gift, and that amount is enough to fulfill that person's role in maintaining the unity of the church. It's given to the measure, to, given to an exactness, to precision by Jesus Christ. So we have gifts that vary, but the difference of the gift is not what determines the value of the gift. Because each gift is enough, is given in an exact measure to fulfill a common purpose. The difference of value is determined, as a commentator has said, only by the individual's use of it within the body. The gifts vary, but they have the same value. How you use the gift determines the value you bring to the church. So Christ has the right to give gifts, and he has given gifts to each member of the church to the exact amount needed to fulfill his or her role in maintaining the unity of the church. And then Paul talks about what the gifts are, the provision, verse 11 to 12 of chapter four. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. You might be familiar that in the New Testament there are many lists of gifts. And they are not all the same. Right, there, there's, there are lists which overlap, which have like the same gifts repeated in, in two, three different places. And there are omissions in each list. Right? There are gifts which are mentioned in one, like the gift of hospitality, which is not mentioned in some other list. What, what, what's the reason for that? Because none of these lists are meant to be exhaustive. Right? If, if uh, God has not given us a listing of all the gifts that are available or are given to people, but in each of its contexts, in the passages we find them, they're applicable to the context and the situation at hand. So when we read this entire passage from verse one onwards, we said this is primarily a passage of confession. He says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So the gifts that are mentioned are related to this confession, to the preaching and the propagation and the guarding of that confession. And here, uh, kind of uniquely among many of the other lists. The gifts are not just the talents, like hospitality is a talent, you could say, or a, or a, or a quality, but the gifts are people, right? People who have specific talents, and the talents are obviously what's given to them, but he mentions that the people who have the talents, think of them as the gifts, not just the fact that, oh, there is one preacher, but somebody else is also has a gift of preaching, and they're kind of interchangeable. No, he says, no, these people are the gifts, and so 
the gifts that he mentions are related to the confession. And specifically in verse 11, he talks about the foundational gifts. They lay the foundation for the church with regards to the confession of faith. So what are these gifts, these people? They are the apostles who are commissioned. We know the apostles in the New Testament who are commissioned by Christ to spread the gospel and to, and to provide authoritative teaching, right? To, to, to uh, guard against uh, heresy, to say, no, this is what the Lord has said. This is what he means. This is how you deal with your fellow brother or sister. This is how a Jew deals with a Gentile. Like they gave that authoritative teaching. And then there were prophets, those who, who faithfully and truthfully revealed the revelation of God without omission or error. So these are two of the foundational gifts given to the church, but these ministries, as we know, were for a time. They laid the foundation. There are verses earlier on in Ephesians which talks about the apostles and the prophets being the cornerstone of the entire body of believers. So they laid a big foundation and, and those ministries or those gifts cease to exist once the authoritative apostolic word of God, the, de the deposit of faith was completed, which is what we have. But just because those gifts have, uh, have ceased to exist doesn't mean that the purpose with which they were created are completely, uh, what do you say, no longer needed. So then he talks about three other foundational gifts which exist today and which in a sense are similar, not the same, similar to the gifts of the apostles and prophets, which is evangelists who take the gospel to new places. They create churches and disciples. If you think about it, that's kind of one of the ministries of the early apostles was exactly that. Right? They went to new places, took the gospel, created churches and disciples. Then there are teachers who faithfully proclaim the word of God in their local communities without error, without omission. And then there are shepherds who are elders who are tasked with maintaining and keeping account of the spiritual life and growth of the church, guarding against falsehood, exhorting and encouraging believers to continue in their Christian walk. So the, the, the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, the ministry of giving us the apostolic word, the word of God is complete. But some of the aspects of their ministries continue today. And those, and those aspects are fulfilled by these three foundational gifts. The evangelists, the teacher, and the shepherd. But just because you, know, you have a foundation and no one just leaves a house with just a foundation. Right? I mean, there are some houses with just a foundation. It means the builder ran out of money. But the foundational gifts do not exist in a vacuum. They are given so that those who have these gifts can do what? Verse 12. What do they do? They equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the foundational gifts are given so that those who have those who are, those who have these gifts, can prepare or train, that's the meaning of the word equip, can prepare or train every saint, every believer in the church, in the local body of believers, for the work or the activity 
of ministry. That is the variety of gifts. The foundational gifts train other believers in the activity of ministering to each other. That is serving Christ by ministering to one another. The foundational gifts equip every believer in the church to exercise his or her gift in active ministry in the community. To what end? To build up the body, which is to edify and strengthen and aid the growth of the body so that unity may be maintained. So the gifts of ministry that are given to each one of us are not for self-edification, including the foundational gifts. All of these gifts are given not for ourselves, but for the edification of the whole body of believers. So one of the things we need to ask is what makes a ministry Christian? Is it merely because Christian people do things, maybe for other Christian people, that a ministry is Christian? And the answer clearly is not. The ministries that we do need to have the purpose both of being founded in the confession of faith, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, and also with the purpose of building up the body. If our ministries cannot tick these two boxes, there's something incomplete about them. If our ministries do not tick any of these boxes, that ministry is not Christian. Regardless of whether I do it, and I do it for you. A Christian ministry needs to have a confessional aspect. It propagates the confession of the faith in the body of believers, and it builds up the body through that ministry. When that is done, the church is edified and built up. So we looked at the provider of the gifts, Jesus Christ, the, uh, the provision, what are the variety of gifts. And then we come in verse 13 to 16 to the purpose of the gifts. It says verse 13 to 16, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the goal of the gifts, the, the, how the unity of the church can be maintained and strengthened, is detailed in these three verses. And though it seems like there are different goals, when you read the words initially, it looks like there are many goals. There's actually only one goal. And you look at the word that is repeated. What is the goal of the gifts? It is the, for the church to attain maturity. That is the goal. Until we all, verse 13, until we all together as a body can reach maturity. Maturity in the New Testament basically positively means you're an adult. Negatively it means you are no longer a child. So until we all together as a body have become adult, have become mature, these gifts, these ministries are given till that purpose 
is accomplished. And maturity is illustrated in, uh, you know, in different aspects within the church in verses 13 and 15. One aspect of it is that the body reaches the unity of the faith. What does that mean? We looked at the fact that the church is already united. We have a united confession. But that unity of the confession needs to become practical. It needs to become visible. So that what is our confession in our hearts and in our mouth becomes visibly manifested in our practice so that no disharmony exists between what we say and how we appear. That is the attaining of the unity of the faith. We know what is unity, but there's a difference between what we believe and say and how we appear. We need to reach the unity of the faith. That's part of maturity. Then there's the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. That means this unity will only come about when we reach as a body together, a unity in our understanding of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is that we are aware of the, of the, of the doctrines, the orthodoxy of our faith, and we are all able in some sense, and we are all passionate to guard the purity of these doctrines, to defend it eloquently, passionately, together as a church in opposition to the deceit of false doctrine, which is mentioned in verse 14. So church is mature when its appearance matches what it says, when it reaches a, a level of maturity in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that every member together as a body is equipped to defend it. And then lastly, it says to mature manhood. We have to be presentable as a unified mature body. It says this church is no longer a child. It's a mature church. The standard of maturity to which we aim, Paul goes on to say in verse 13, is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So again, you see that word measure, right? So our goal in maturity is to be mature as Christ is mature, to become like him, to grow into him, verse 15, to grow into him who is our head. So both the source and the goal of Christian maturity is whom? Jesus Christ. So we are, we are to be earnest in our attempts to approach the standard. The measure, the exactness of the moral and ethical and holy standard of Jesus Christ. And we will say, yes, it is impossible in this life. But just because it's impossible doesn't mean we don't try. That is our measure. In F.F. Bruce, says this about uh, this verse. He says, the glorified Christ provides the standard at which his people are to aim. The corporate Christ, which is the local church, cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of the personal Christ. We cannot be content to say that we are still children and say, well, in this life, and then wash our hands. So, to bring it all together, the measure of gifts given to each one of us when applied in ministry amongst each other leads to the maturing of the body towards what? Towards the standard of Christ's maturity. Towards the standard of Christ's fullness. 
which results, that process results in maintaining the unity of the church. Where there is maturity, or where there is a trend towards maturity, there is unity. Which means conversely, where there is immaturity, there is disunity. That's what he says in verse 14. It's a negative example. Verse 14 says, so that we may no longer be children. Toast, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what stands in the way of maturity? What stands in the way of maturity? Immaturity. And, and Paul talks about it in terms of children, right? If we continue to remain children in the faith. We have to understand there's nothing wrong with being children in the Christian faith. What's the name of our church? New Life. Why do we pick that name? Because it sounds good? No. Because it signifies the reality of the Christian faith, which is that every believer starts out as what? A new life. So everyone starts out as children. So that's why Paul says he includes himself. We may no longer be children. Whether you are 8 or 15 or 55, everyone who's new in the faith is a child. And children need to grow into adulthood or maturity. And there are many positive aspects of childlikeness, even in the Bible, right? There's a zeal, there's a passion, there's an energy. But what he's specifically referring to here is not childlikeness, but what is it? Childishness. Childishness is dangerous when it continues, when the growth towards maturity doesn't happen. Where it affects the unity of the body is when that childlikeness is not transformed into maturity and instead the childlikeness becomes overtaken by childishness. Right? Of all the great things you can say about children, one of the most common things you will understand when you have children is that children are not very self-aware. Children don't operate thinking that they are children. They do not want to actually live by a standard which says, I am an adult, you are a child. They want to go against and do things you know, that, that the adults command. They want to act as if they can make their own decisions without the knowledge and the experience which is needed to actually make those decisions, which is what we call as adulthood. You know what they say, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's what children have, little knowledge. You tell a child not to eat candy before your meal. In the beginning, that's okay. Then they start realizing there are varieties of candy. Then they're like, is this actually a candy? Is a chocolate-covered blueberry actually a candy? Because you could say, that, oh, this is a blueberry. It's a good thing to eat a blueberry. They know that. The chocolate around is just a way to get the blueberry in, right? Children constantly question. They constantly want to test the boundary. And with the limited knowledge that they have, they try to work out how restrictions can be, can be taken off. Then they're fickle, their attention spans are limited. They're liable to chase after shiny things and then they get bored. They get distracted from the boring work that sometimes you have to give them. Okay, you have to learn or you have to eat, you have to grow, no, that's boring. I would rather be running around doing something else. So here, these childish behaviors 
are pointed out as dangerous specifically when it comes to the faith. Tossed to and fro by false doctrine. Fickleness. They hear one thing, this is very attractive, let me investigate that. They do that for five minutes. Oh, something else comes up, let me do that. Then they are taken advantage of by others, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceit. Because they have no experience, their inexperience leads them to fall prey to people who would entice them with deception into falsehood. And most of the times that's other people taking advantage of their inexperience. But sometimes it's they themselves and they don't know it. The heart is deceitful about all things, above all things, the Bible says. They themselves convince themselves that, oh, this is this thing which is wrong is actually right. So the picture is of immaturity and instability and that threatens the growth and the unity of the church itself. So here Paul's urgent admonition to the church is that we are not to remain children but rather become adults in the faith, in the practice of faith, in the confession of faith. That we are to help each other along in the process of growing up. How do you do that? What's a positive example? Verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Rather, in contrast to childishness, we are to grow up and display the qualities of an adult so that you can continue to grow. The process has to continue. In contrast to those who are children, and especially in contrast to those who take advantage of children with cunning and craftiness, the church, we all, it says, should be identified by its consistent willingness to stand up for the truth, to call out falsehood, even in its own members, but in what spirit? In the spirit of true love for one another. In the spirit that we do not wish to see this brother or sister fall back or fail in his or her maturing process. That is, truth is not to be used in the same way some people use falsehood. People use falsehood in verse 14 to deceive others. And sometimes you can use truth the same way. Not out of love, but with an agenda. Instead of that, it says, speak the truth in love with the motivation to gently correct and restore a fellow or brother or sister back to the path of growth. Our truth telling is not to be marked by harshness or deceitful motives. So in the morning we read about first John, we read from first John, our brother was sharing. Now first John says anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It also says in chapter one, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and him there is no darkness at all. This is true. Both these things need to be true. You have to speak the truth in love. Both of these things need to coexist. You have to temper the harshness that can arise from just mere truth telling with the virtue of love that looks out sacrificially for a fellow brother or sister. And so in the speaking and the practice of truthfulness merged with this attitude of love, the church together is to grow into the fullness of Christ, how? In every way, in every aspect of spiritual growth. There shouldn't be an imbalance. There shouldn't be just a growth in that, oh, we are very hospitable. 
or, or we are very passionate about evangelism, but we are not passionate about teaching or Bible study. So in, in every aspect, we are to grow so that we can grow into him who is the head. And what's important to remember is that just as with children, as those with children know, some, sometimes the pace of growth can be frustrating. But pace of growth is not as important as the consistency and the constancy of growth. There has to be growth. There will be patience with the pace. But when there is no growth, there's an alarm that has to be sounded. And so he brings it all together in verse 16. It says, from the whole body, from whom the whole body, that is Jesus Christ, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he's bringing it all together. He says, Christ is the head, the source. And the body, his body, which is a church, is joined. It's, it's fitted or knit together by Christ. And then once it is joined, it is interconnected and supported by each part, which is each member, as if we are all joints in a body. See, when each member is functioning properly, and that word properly, again, means according it's the same word, according to the measure or standard. When each member functions, you know, engineers use the term, according to specification. This machine is supposed to output uh, nine volts at, at five hertz or something like that. That's the specification. So when each member performs according to specification, according to the standard with which him or her has been given a gift, then the body grows, building itself up in a context of love, in an environment of love. See, this is a biological analogy, right? Each cell or ligament or muscle has a purpose that can only be fulfilled when they join with each other in the context of the body or the organism to which it belongs. And when cell joins cell, muscle uh, joins born and, and ligament comes together to function as required, then the organism will grow. If one cell goes wrong or one organ fails, the whole body's growth is stunted and put at risk of failure. And what is the environment in which this growth has to happen? Again, it's love. Just like children grow better in a loving family, so the church grows better when that growth is in an environment of love. So that's a biological analogy. The second one is one of construction or building. So he says, the whole body is joined and uh, is joined by Christ, right? And, and, and that word joined means to be knit together or fitted by someone. We see that same word in Colossians chapter two and verse 19, it says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished, and what is it? Knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth, that is from God. You know, today when you think of construction, I don't know how many of you are interested in construction, but today the bricks that we have, you know, how we make uh, buildings, the constituent parts, right, whether that's brick or some kind of uh, stone or whatever else it might be with mortar and all of that, is, is, precious, uh, is precision guided by laser, right, most, in most cases. It's very, it's very like, uh, they're all kind of the same. So if you look at a house, it's, it's like all the same bricks arranged together because they, they make it to a precision, 
but they are all kind of the same. You know, there's a very famous song by uh, Pink Floyd called Brick in the Wall. Basically what they say is that it, it's, uh, not to go too deep, but it's basically them saying that the education system takes children and then just puts them out as bricks and then they say, I just don't want to be under brick in the wall. Right? Every brick looks the same. So when we think of construction, that's what we think about. One brick, red in color, under brick, red in color, you put it on top, they look exactly the same. And you build, but you have no identity. But in ancient times, that's not what they did. In ancient times, they would cut each stone by hand. And when they cut each stone by hand, they needed to know how much space needed to be filled. And when they need to know how much space needs to be filled, there's no uniform shape either, right? So the, every single one had a purpose. And they all kind of looked different from each other. It says God in his grace has fitted each stone into the body. He has made each stone into a unique shape so that only that piece can fit into the overall tapestry, into the overall architecture. So it's bringing together of people is not haphazard. It's not like one member comes in, great, slot in here. That member leaves, find another one and slot in here. No, it's a, it's a precision. Each stone has been fitted together. You know, the closest I can think of this is like, not bricks in the wall, but have you played the game Tetris? Right? In Tetris, or what we used to call like brick game or whatever it is, it's like a video game. The bricks come in all shapes and sizes. There's a square, there's a, there's a weird L, then there's like an S and you can rotate it all around and all of that. But sometimes you're building up your wall and there's like an exact shape, which it requires that weird L, right? With the long, with the long, uh, with the long vertical part and the small foot. And if the square comes, you can't put it in. If the S comes, you can't put it in. You need the L. It's precision. There's a purpose. And you wait till you get that piece and you put it in. The goal of Christian unity, like I said, is not conformity. It's not uniformity. It's harmony. That's what he's saying. Every piece, precision fitted to the context of the body to which it should belong. You know, so many people go to the East or go to some cult saying, I want to find myself. And what do they do? They become just like everyone else in that cult. They, they, remove, they lose their identity, they give away their clothes, and then they wear the same thing, they say the same things, they take on a new name which is not new, it's shared by 1,500 other people. So they basically say, I want to lose myself to gain myself. But God says, no, you, I want to restore and renew and refresh your identity, not to erase it. Harmony is harder than conformity or uniformity. But the harmony to which God has called us in the church, the unity to which God has called us is not impossible. That's what Paul wants today. He's saying it's possible, not just that it's possible, it's desirable and it's attainable. How? Because we have one Lord. He's the conquering king. He has the authority and the right 
to give gifts, which lay the foundation of the church so that each one of us uniquely fitted pieces can engage in activity and ministry in ministering to each other to build each other up so that together we all grow into maturity, no longer content with being children. And thereby we maintain the unity of the church so that in us, where the fullness of Christ dwells, we can be engaged with Christ as he continues in his mission to fill all things. The unity of the church is a means to that end. It is not the end in itself. And he has not left us without help. So may we use the gifts that we have been uniquely given. May we know that we are valued and valuable in the body of Christ for, our, for each one. That no one else can take my place to the purpose that God has fitted me. And may we maintain the unity of the church together as we read here today. May his name be glorified. Father God, we thank you a lot for your word and for your provision of it to us so that we can uh, look into it and understand and learn uh, what you desire us to learn, especially in this crucial matter of, uh, of building up the church and maintaining its unity so that, oh Lord, we will not be taken away from the mission that you have given us, which is to come alongside you in your quest to fill all things so that no inch, no quarter of a space in the universe cannot be under uh, or will, will no longer be under the authority of the devil, but rather will proclaim allegiance and will be under the authority of Jesus Christ, the conquering king who has won our hearts, who has redeemed us from the slavery of sin by defeating sin and death and the devil. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts you have given us, both in uh, the foundational ministries and also our own individual ministries. We know, Lord, that sometimes it's a challenge to find out exactly what it is that you want us to do as individuals, but we know, Lord, that if we are attuned to your purpose, which is that there's to be harmony and unity in the building of the church, we are sure that we can find out your purpose for each one of us as we come alongside each other in building up this church, Lord. We pray for wisdom for everyone as we seek to support one another in this joint organism. As we build each other up, we look to each other in love and we look to you for grace and sustenance. So we ask a lot for your continued favor upon us as a body and for your grace toward us as we as members go out into the world proclaiming your testimony. So we pray and ask in the mighty and mass name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.